0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. It usually takes years to develop a vaccine, but with COVID-19, the process was accelerated. Before the pandemic, it could take 10 years to get a new vaccine from concept to approval, reports the University of Chicago. The time of discovery for the COVID vaccine was compressed partly because of the public's interest in ending the pandemic. Dario Gill is director of IBM Research. He says earlier efforts to fund science and technology also helped.
1: We've witnessed this in the concept of the vaccine, thanks to prior investments. And if we can develop that, imagine the implications that that could have for some of these big challenges. Can we take lessons from COVID's rapid response
0: to tackle other big global problems like climate change? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Right now we're experiencing a science moment because tons of data is being produced, the public is more engaged than before the pandemic, and researchers, companies, and governments are collaborating more. The pandemic has ushered in high expectations of what science can deliver. But are the discoveries keeping up with the amount of science being done and generated? IBM's Dario Gill oversees 3,000 researchers who work on AI, quantum computing, and a host of other emerging technologies. He joins Nicholas Dirks, the president and CEO of the New York Academy of Sciences, and Serple Ayers Room, the chief research and academic officer of Cleveland Clinic. They spoke in June with Allison Snyder of Axios about the pace of discovery in an age of streamlined research and development processes and advanced computing. Snyder asked Dario Gill the first question.
2: So I wanted to start by asking all of you, we're sort of in a, uh, a perceived science heyday, right? There's the number of publications, the, number, the amount of data being produced, uh, there's a lot of interest both in the public, there's interest in funding. Is the pace of discovery keeping up with all of that? And maybe we can start with you.
1: I definitely think we are witnessing a science moment. Uh, in, in the nation and, and also around the world. And in ways that perhaps um, have not been exemplified since the Apollo program, since the 1960s, the fact that a vaccine could be developed instead of the average time of, you know, around 14 years when a vaccine could be developed at all, to do it under a year, it's a way to, you know, manifest the power uh, of science and make it palpable in a way that is going to touch, uh, is touching every single one of us, mm-hmm. and ultimately will touch almost every human uh, around the world that we haven't witnessed in many, many decades. At the same time, we're also seeing a science moment in the desire to actually address some of the chronic underinvestments that have happened from the perspective of the federal government for many decades. Um, GDP, if you look at as a percentage of GDP invested Um, by the federal government into R&D, it peaked in the late 1960s at about 1.4% of GDP. At present, that number is around 0.7%. So we have seen an erosion uh, over time. We saw, for example, something that was very positive was the doubling of the NIH over the 2000s. But it has not kept pace in the physical sciences, as an example, the role of the National Science Foundation and other areas. Right now, going through Congress, uh, there's legislation that is actually going to make a real dent uh, across this, and a bipartisan legislation. And we're contemplating investments on the level, level of about $150 billion, both in support of semiconductor technology, chips, and we got a chance in a previous session to talk about the critical importance that that has to the nation but also in a broad variety of areas uh, that have to do with AI and quantum computing and many other areas that are going to be very important. And this will go against the National Science Foundation, against the Department of Energy, um, even in environments like DARPA, et cetera. And then ultimately, the point I would make is why. Why is this happening, and what is the expectation? I really believe that the expectation is compressing the time of discovery of some of the most fundamental challenges that we confront. The pandemic is an example, but climate change is another example, or we could talk about agriculture, all sorts of other life-threatening diseases that we need to confront. And ultimately, like, we believe that it is possible as a consequence of decades of investments in science and technology to compress the time to discovery by a factor of 10x. And we've witnessed this in the concept of the vaccine, thanks to prior investments. And if we can develop that, Imagine the implications that that could have for some of these big challenges. So, is the combination of this science moment of aggregate investment mm-hmm. and how will we pursue it to achieve our societal objectives?
2: Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you, Sir because you're um, you know you're overseeing a pandemic response team or um, right. preparedness team. Um, how this sort of when you look at the work that you're doing, how could it be accelerated? Where are the areas that you think could be focused on? Um, and Maybe also what are the challenges that you foresee there? Thanks.
3: Well, I, nothing could have uh, gone faster this past year. It was an amazing year for how quickly we were able to respond and mobilize and learn about this new virus and understand how to treat it, how to best treat it. Complicated, very ill patient in the intensive care unit. Uh, and then, of course, the creation of the vaccine. These are science and technology at its best. But we'd like to bring that to bear across all of medicine. I'm a physician and a scientist. The basic discoveries are wonderful. And of course, the data science is great. But you all go to the doctor hoping for cures. You want those discoveries translated. You want the data quickly available, as Dario said, 10 times faster if you have cancer or heart failure or neurodegeneration. The speed has to be at the level of what we did with the pandemic. Right now, each of you, I can measure every molecule in your body from the whole genome of your DNA to all the RNA transcribed, all the proteins produced. And I can do that in every single one of your cells. I have information on you if you're wearables. I can ask you about your environment. Your electronic health record alone contains massive data on you. Massive data does not mean fabulous knowledge. It has to be integrated. Each one of you alone with your data would be about 300 million books. I can't read 300 million books. (laughs) I need help. (laughs) And so Cleveland Clinic is partnering with IBM because we want to go faster. We want to think differently. Everybody has a cell phone in their pocket. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you had access to all that information so that when you came to see a doctor like me, we could talk about it? And so that's our goal, and that's what I think the future of medicine should look like.
2: how fast could you go? I mean, what, when, we talk about what's, when we talk about accelerating this, what are the tools that are needed? Um, I come from a science background, so I think technical tools immediately. What, what are, what's the, I guess, the, um, the conditions that are needed for the type of acceleration you all are searching for?
1: I think if you look at the, you know, uh, simplified scientific method of you saying, learning from the past, formulating hypotheses, mm-hmm. conducting experiments, and then validating and sharing it with the community. And if you just simplify those four steps, Mm -hmm. and you say, how can we apply the modern advances in computation as an example to each one of those? It turns out that you can accelerate and make a difference on each one of those steps. On the first one, learning from the past or learning from the trove of data, none of us can read even a tiny fraction of the advances that are happening. Mm -hmm. So techniques like deep search, where you're able to use natural language processing to be able to ingest literature at scale. Mm -hmm. And thanks to advances that have happened in AI, not just text, but the diagrams that are in the scientific literature, Mm -hmm. the tables are present, the figures, and build knowledge graphs that allows then scientists to be able to incorporate that prior knowledge and use it to discover more quickly what we know already. Mm -hmm. But then you look at the second step, hypothesis generation. This is a really interesting new advance that has happened in the world of AI with the use of something called generative models. You may have heard around machine learning where you use a lot of data and you use the neural network to do classification. In this case, you're using it to do something different. You're using it to do something called generation. So in this case, let's say I'm a chemist. I say, given these properties, let me use the generative models to generate molecules, generate hypotheses for me help me with the act of imagination of creativity. That is relatively new in terms of a new capability. And then you go and talk about automatic experimentation and what is the role of doing automated synthesis, as an example, with robotic automation. Mm -hmm. So we've taken this approach of taking those steps and systematically applying it in the context of the scientific method and as a companion to a scientist in conducting their work. Mm
2: -hmm. So, We all saw, obviously, the speed at which some of the science was done during the pandemic, but that also generated some distrust among some people. So there's sort of a a trade-off here, and I'm curious, maybe it's to start, like, you know, how does that factor in um, when you think about accelerating science in these ways, particularly when you're talking about applied, you're talking about medicine, you know, giving people treatments and cures, how does that factor in?
3: I think this is one of the most... um, curious things that uh, I think we've all experienced over the last year and a half. Um, The idea that if you're in a crisis, a healthcare crisis, definitely you want scientists, researchers, doctors, you want people on board to find the solutions. I think that was clear to everyone. But I think the speed at which everything moved uh, perhaps uh, led to some distrust and hesitation with accepting uh, the solutions that were arrived at so quickly. And this is in contrast to, you know, the past hundred years in medicine where solutions have been found in healthcare. care uh, over the la- it's been called the golden age of medicine the last hundred years. Uh-huh. And the reason that people live so long now are because we have vaccines, primarily discovered in the 30s, 40s, 50s. People don't die of smallpox or polio or diphtheria or tetanus. Maybe some of you remember those diseases. They were horrific to see a child. Mostly children under five got polio. No antibiotics. So those revolutions seem to be very well accepted that those are solutions science brought that doubled our lifespan from the beginning of the 1900s from 40 to 80. And yet there does seem to be this hesitation now that when we have a vaccine for the first major pandemic since 1918 with the flu that people are not sure they want to participate in it despite 4 million some people dying of this virus and uh, it's it's a fascinating phenomenon
4: you know I'm I'm a historian so I can now speak about my uh, (laughs) my actual trade Uh, but uh, it's been the case that the faster the pace of scientific scientific discovery the more reaction there's been to science Uh, and of course you know you have different instances in which uh, whether it was for example even the polio vaccine and there of course it was complicated mm-hmm. by the fact that one batch was contaminated so there were quite a few children who actually got polio because they took one of the early vaccines which of course set back the whole process of acceptance for that vaccine by a significant period of time. But it's been the case with everything from nuclear energy and nuclear power to, uh, to, to drugs to uh, AI about which you're hopefully gonna say more. Uh, that you know, the, the, the faster the pace, the more uh, people have been concerned in one way or another. And not just you know, the kind of uh, 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 uneducated person on the right, but there have been uh, reactions to science across the spectrum of both the political uh, uh, world, but also in terms of background and levels of education. At uh, the same time, you know, one of the things that we lose sight of with the fast vaccine, and I, this is to invoke what I was saying before about fundamental research, about the fast development of, of, the, uh, of the vaccine, especially the mRNA vaccines that were produced by Pfizer and Moderna, is that they were predicated on, you know, years of work on, uh, on mRNA technologies that had never worked before but that had a, a significant prehistory, uh, including the work, by the way, that was done by Jennifer Doudna which is why she went into uh, uh, that branch of biology as opposed to DNA, which was the big, big thing. Uh, if you haven't read Walter Isaacson's book, The Codebreakers*, you should. Uh, it's an amazing story, but um, it also tells the story of how uh, the vaccines came out of a, a, a much longer prehistory. But that being said, nine months, it seems too fast. We don't have uh, you know, real uh, uh, evidence about what the long-term effects of the vaccine might be. And the truth is, we don't. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a constant struggle. The faster the pace, the more I think we have to deal with uh, trying to find other ways to establish greater levels of trust for what we do in science and technology. And that is a very complicated set of, uh, of questions. But I don't think we can treat scientific discovery independent of the need to think about ethical, regulatory, uh, uh, and, um, and public understanding and education around all of the things that we're working mm-hmm. on and coming up with.
2: I'm curious in the field of AI how this plays in because there's obviously uh, trust in the, the AI and what it's doing, what it, you know, um, but then there's also just, like, there is, I think, distrust of what it means for, for me, right? I mean, me as a, um, me as a, a worker in a, in a manufacturing facility, me as a scientist, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, the idea of, like, you're talking about automating uh, science, that's, that's, I think, pretty interesting. So, how, I mean, how does it factor in when you think about AI's role in, in all of this?
1: Well, I mean, the first thing I'll say about AI is that it is unfortunate that we ended up uh, with, you know, selling with AI as a as word itself because people mm-hmm. project all sorts uh, of, you know, <laughs> concerns, optimism uh, against that technology In ways that is not commensurate with the reality of what is going on, so it becomes kind of like a proxy for these, you know, for for some people the utopians, right? They they believe that that through AI, right, we will vanish the need to labor and work and reach some kind of utopia, and the dystopian version of it we all know through the movies, you know, of like what is going to happen on AI and you know uh, losing control and essentially in the U.S. version kill us all. But it's interesting uh, as a sociological uh, experiment to use AI as uh, a vehicle to surface the anxieties that are present in all of us right, as individuals and in society and to make the contrast of how people react to AI depending on where you are geographically. So if you're in Europe, the, cons- the, the discussion around AI and like labor and unemployment, it is central. Right? So there, the lens is AI as a proxy for technology that will automate all jobs and unemployment, which is already very high. You know, I come in from Spain as an example. That lens of our society with a high unemployment rate gets recast now with the lens of AI, whether that has been the cause of it or not, which at present, it's not. Simply, you know, sort of a factual basis, right? Given the maturity. If you go to Japan, the context is different. The AI interpretation is much more benign—an aging society that, uh, you know, with population declining, and a much more benign interpretation of robots, you know, going to help us, you know, and help us with the thing, mm-hmm. with uh, with our life. And in the U.S., a much more militaristic version, right, of like the, you know, uh, lens around it. So it's a long answer to this point that we use AI as a form of projection, and almost a technological determinism of the very futures we fear. The technology has advanced. It is very impressive what it can do. Is nowhere near the capability of the projection mm-hmm. that people associate with it. So I use it much more as I, when people tell me about, like, what's happening in AI, the fears around AI, as a conversation about technology overall, mm-hmm. about the relationship between technology and society, and what do we want, and what uh, should the purpose be. And I'll close by saying that I'm not a technological determinist. That in the end, I think technology should be at the purpose of humans, of what we want and what we need. And that's how it casts AI. But please don't think of AI as this thing that exists sort of on its own and self-creates and goes advances. I think that enters the realm of science fiction in ways that are not constructive to the current situation or what is likely to come in the years to come. And put the onus back on people and the institutions and what we create and what for.
2: I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about um, the role of collaboration in all of this because we were talking about the technologies um, and what can be done there but I'm curious, I guess, um, for each of you to talk about the role of collaboration and actually accelerating science um, and we're in an interesting sp- moment I think right now, um, obviously geopolitically, also, um, you know, what we see happening in science in terms of how it's, how it's done. I mean, there's a, a good portion of it is now done multilaterally between multiple, uh, multiple um, nations and sort of, you know, I'm curious how each of you think just start collaboration plays into this. What's its role? How important is it in accelerating what you're talking about 10 times here?
3: Well, this past year showed that we could work together. Mm-hmm. In fact, we, we formed a team amongst healthcare organizations to share data freely, openly, um, Things were put out on the internet rapidly um, for discussion of outcomes, real time with patients that were in the hospital that were sick. So this kind of free communication, um, while it happens at national meetings uh, for physicians, uh, for the first time it was happening on a daily basis with really the globe uh, as the platform. Uh, Doctors in Italy, New York, London, Abu Dhabi. And uh, we found that we were mobilizing some of our physicians and nurses, uh, ventilators, uh, to care for patients in other states. It could never have been done before because states have policies and rules about who can practice nursing, what physicians can do in different states. And so we were able to allocate the resources and help our colleagues around the world Um, It's very inspirational uh, at this time, I think, in history to see that happening, countries reaching out, sharing information, helping each other. Um, We've always collaborated on an individual basis for science and for medical care, but uh, I don't think there's anything like this, and I'm looking at Nicholas and the history of the world, except maybe in World War II. (laughs) I think there was some collaboration around antibiotics and so forth because there were insufficient amounts. But um, to see everybody mobilized for the greater good was, was, it was just inspirational. And um, now, uh, as we are hopefully, you know, as we see coming out of it, um, we see what we could do and what we should do moving forward. To me, for moving forward, we have to work together. People on right here, Nicholas, Dario, and myself. Hospitals need a new kind of scientist. They're called data scientists to understand all the information coming at them. If it's coming at them every moment of the day, 24 hours a day, literally seven days a week, and the turnaround time for basic science to enter clinical care. That was remarkable this year. And we collaborated with folks, we would never, Cleveland Clinic and Mayo Clinic are somewhat competitive with each other, but we collaborated on the largest, one of the largest convalescent plasma trials, and we're open about it because patients needed it. So I think, I hope that this sets a standard for the future and that um, that would be the way forward, but really need I think this idea, Daria, you brought up—that we need to train our young people in science and technology so we can be prepared in the future, not just for a pandemic, but as I said, you know, all healthcare problems, uh, including you know, poor nutrition, obesity, opioid epidemic—all those things need to be taken care
4: of.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I can share an example of a unique form of collaboration that happened because of the pandemic and this global crises that if you told me two years ago, whether it could have happened, I would have said it's impossible. And the example I'll share with you is something called the COVID-19 High Performance Computing Consortium. And uh, I had the privilege of being part of, of its creation, but simply put, we had an idea, which was we should aggregate the world's supercomputers that are distributed across national laboratories in the United States, National Science Foundation, universities, and the private sector and make them available for free under emergency authorization to the leading scientists that were combating the pandemic. And when this was created, it was formed as a public-private partnership between, as I said, the federal government and private sector and universities. And we brought together, I mean, not only companies like IBM, but also all my competitors, right, and Google and Amazon and HP and many, many companies as well as seven national laboratories, NASA, NSF, over a dozen universities, and we aggregated close to $2 billion worth of supercomputers and made them available on their emergency basis to conduct this work, and we supported over 100 uh, research projects through the, through the year. Now, that aspect of it, that under an emergency when we're all combating a common threat, the ability to rally and share resources for a purpose is something that we've learned we can do. It's really rare that we used to do things like that. But once you learn, my desire, and I think that that's a discussion that uh, you know one of the projects we're, we're working together, is that how do we institutionalize it? How do we not forget how we're able to solve these problems in ways that our society is capable of doing it, but we don't yet doing? And that's the role of leadership and institutional creativity And this idea that we put forth of creating something called the International Science Reserves.
4: So just to, you know, reprise two things you said. One is that uh, we're, we have an example, we have many examples during the pandemic of great collaboration. But we also know that it takes a crisis of that magnitude for us to really put aside some of the kind of competitive things that do get in the way. And... You know, in my world, in the university world, individual scientists collaborate, work together all the time. You don't see scientific papers without multiple uh, 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 co-authors and, and collaborators. But institutions don't collaborate very well. And, uh, and that's true of universities, leave, leave alone uh, universities working in the private sector, working with government, working across multiple sectors. And so what we need to learn from the pandemic, among other things, is... How to, how, to, how to translate that into the present. But The second thing we learned is that some of the organizations that are supposed to uh, 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 curate collaboration, the WHO, the CDC, they didn't work so well. Uh, and they didn't work so well in part, of course, because of the high levels of politicization that occurred uh, over the last uh, couple of years. But again, even that has a prehistory going well before the present, the present crisis. So what we've been talking about uh, is, indeed, how to take some of the lessons of the pandemic, translate them into protocols going forward that would allow us to uh, really be not only uh, uh, able to think about collaboration in new kinds of ways. Competition is great. Mm -hmm. It's great in the private sector. It's great for scientists. You know, there was uh, a lot of very useful competition between Berkeley and MIT, or the Broad, over the question of CRISPR-Cas9. But there was some element of that competition that was not terribly productive. I can, I can say that now, now that I'm no longer Chancellor. Um, but uh, but the, the, the collaboration gene is something we, we have to select for. Yeah. Uh, so what, uh, what we've been talking about on the basis of this experience of the High Performance Computing Consortium is to create something, we're calling it now the International Science Reserve, but it's intended to be a kind of network that puts together uh, multiple partners, uh, pre-wires, or you know begins to set up a circuitry for prospective collaboration in the event of the next big crisis, knowing, of course, that the next crisis will be a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, we always have a tendency, I think, when, uh, when a crisis occurs to, as the generals say, fight the last war And it's going to be different, and it's going to involve different kinds of skills. So the second thing, in addition to trying to set up the circuitry of a reserve of scientists and scientific resources, uh, is to conduct across these networks a variety of readiness exercises where we basically do scenario planning for the next set of catastrophes. And we begin to think forward as to what we might need to do in the event that it's a pathogen, but waterborne pathogen. Or in the event of, when we heard about uh, cyber attacks earlier today, uh, a, a totally disabling cyber attack. Or Dario's favorite example, which is an asteroid dropping down on <laughs> the IBM labs in, uh, in Westchester
1: County. <laughs> <laughs> or is that, is, that, is that not That's correct? from Avi Loeb, but yeah, <laughs> that's right. I, I did co-author a paper with him, in Scientific American.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> so what sorts of resources are we talking about? We're talking high performance computing, uh, genomic sequencing? What are some of the, you know, the types of tools that you're, that you're trying to sort of tap, I guess, and, and the capacity you're trying to build?
1: Yeah, so, so we're accustomed to the idea of reserve capacity in, in a different context, right, in the world of military and so on where people engage in scenario planning. In this case, uh, if you look at what are some of the horizontal technology capabilities that are present, computation is one. Well. Data science, you know, that Serpa was alluding to, is something ubiquitous. No matter what you're confronting, you're gonna be, you know, you have this issue of ingesting massive amount of data, analyzing, and putting context. Satellites, satellite imagery, you know, for example, can be extremely relevant in the context of, obviously, um, emergencies related to weather, uh, et cetera. Genomic sequencing uh, and the interpretation of that sequencing uh, is extraordinarily important. But so are, um, you know, the social sciences. I mean, mm-hmm. we were talking a yes. minute ago that even if you succeed in, in this context of developing a vaccine, you still have the yes. issue of how do you get society to trust it? Yes. What are the incentives and behaviors that you've got to put in place? In what mechanisms can you build a trust to actually get to the end solution? So just the discovery and the creation of the technology is not enough. So... But the the realization is, you know, a reflection, is that after each crisis, we have seen institutional innovation in science and technology. After World War II, we saw through uh, Vannevar Bush the creation of the National Science Foundation and the beginning of the national laboratories that became then eventually DOE. You saw in the Cold War, you saw the creation of NASA, you saw the creation of DARPA. I think a question we're exploring here is after this global crisis, what are the new institutions we are going to create to prepare ourselves for this future? And One conclusion that we've reached is that the answer is unlikely to be a CDC-like thing, a single institution under a government structure, but rather that we've got to realize that the science and technology talent of our nation is very distributed. The capacity is very distributed after 70 years of investments in science and technology. And what we need is a network that allows us to come together when we confront crisis. We've done it yes. in this pandemic. It really has been unique, I think, in our history of like working as scientists and the way we've collaborated with one another. How do we not lose it the moment we, life goes back to normal? That requires institutions. It requires something like you're, you're referring to as this pre-wiring a mechanism for us to work together, and that's what we're trying to imagine and create with the creation of the International Science Reserves.
4: And just may I just say yes, one thing, which is the uh, uh, the idea is to administer this network, this reserve, out of the New York Academy of Sciences, because it doesn't do research, it doesn't have... Uh, a particular dog in the, in the race. It's, 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 it's a completely neutral organization and it's global. Uh, it's based in New York, but it, a third of our membership is from outside the United States. Uh, and uh, we want, in some sense, to be as uh, uh, just as much of a facilitator as anything else. And I think that's where the idea of the network and of different kinds of resources being put together and uh, and 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 knowledge about who's doing what, where, and what would be needed in the event of this kind of crisis or that uh, is something that we believe really will be necessary uh, in um, in a future in which the next catastrophe is probably just waiting to happen.
1: But one example of a new institution to, just to give a lot of credit to CERPL and your leadership, for example, the new pathogen center the Cleveland Clinic is creating, is another example, right?
3: Yes, so that would be uh, one of the platforms that we think would be very useful. Unfortunately, um, this is not likely to be the last infectious disease that affects the globe. Your lives, your loved ones, uh, your children going to school, the economy, your jobs. Uh, It's put the world at a standstill. We can't have that again. So uh, at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, we are global, and we decided that we were going to invest in a pathogen center. Just the last 20 years have shown us the first SARS, Ebola, Zika, dengue. These are all terrible infectious diseases, tick-borne viruses. And a lot of this globalization and infectious risk is because we are global citizens. We all travel a lot. Somebody in Africa can be in North America the next day. Tick-borne viruses from China are now in Ohio that cause terrible infectious diseases if you are bit by them. So we see infectious diseases as it was in the early 1900s, the greatest threat to humankind. And we have to be ready because it is bound to happen again with global warming and the globalization we're seeing. So I think we have to think this way and we have to be partnered and work together. These things cannot go away because we may need them again and I don't know when, but it won't be
5: I think 100 years.
2: Uh, we're gonna take a couple questions from the audience. So if you have a question raise your hand and there's a mic coming around, go ahead.
5: I hope what I'm about to say sounds as related as it does in my brain when I think it. Um, having been raised in public health and medical anthropology, I agree with you. The, the speed of the collaboration and all of that and, and the, the vaccine has been amazing. It seems to me that if there's any time to promote public health, it's right now. Um, and things like um, obesity and diabetes and every other pre-existing factor that has made people sicker or die from this disease as many other diseases. And the, the prospect of getting to the root of public health and doing the unsexy, how do we change behavior stuff, seems like if there's ever a time to do it, it's right now because people have this example in front of them, education. And I'm wondering if at your institutions, your organizations, you're seeing anyone leading on this kind of collaboration, focus, health behavior, media, you know, that kind of thing? I guess.
4: Well, go, ahead. go ahead. First, just a shout out to schools and colleges of public health. Uh, they're among the most interdisciplinary entities on any university campus. Uh, At Columbia, the Mailman School had anthropologists, sociologists, historians, as well as, of course, people from virtually every biomedical field. And they model, I think, for the rest of the university how real collaborative research and research that is done with applied uh, goals in mind always uh, at the same time uh, can be done. Uh, But schools of public health have not always gotten the prominence within universities they should have. And... Uh, and, you know, I saw this again at, at, at both Columbia and Berkeley. So, you know, to say that uh, within universities, schools of public health are, are doing great work, but they need a lot more support. Uh, at the same time, you know, the, the the role of education in everything from understanding science, uh, understanding what the scientific method is, having a better sense of what clinical trials mean, uh, understanding vaccines, and why perhaps it's not such a good idea to be more scared of a vaccine than of getting COVID and dying, which is of course what many, many people, not only in the US, but around the world uh, uh, will say. Uh, these are things that we really have to uh, use the current moment to, uh, to, to really up our game, because we've seen, despite all the, uh, all the advances of science, we've seen that, uh, something is not being translated into public understandings about the work of science and the things that science is discovering.
3: I'll only just add, thank you for uh, bringing this up because I think we need an, an army of these types of trained people. And so at the Cleveland Clinic, part of our pathogen center with the state of Ohio, we're starting the School of Community Health, which will be from people in the community from high school. They can get a certificate degree two-year degree, postdoctoral degree, and it'll focus on just the ideas you're presenting about diet, nutrition, exercise, what makes you at risk. And this pandemic has really highlighted the disparities, who gets the sickest, who can have access to care. So thank you. Yes, very important.
2: There's another question in the front here.
3: Dr. Erzurum,
1: um, I was very encouraged toward the end of your this panel's discussion about your, your foreseeing greater collaboration going forward in uh, future pandemics. But my question to you is, the initial clumsiness of the CDC, how much do you think that contributed to the issue of people being reluctant to take the vaccines?
3: Well, I think most of you know what happened early on with the Center for Disease Control. It was the testing that they were not allowing um, hospitals or healthcare systems to perform themselves in the laboratories. And you were required to send it to a CDC site, and it was slow. Turnaround time was long, uh, as opposed to tests in our hospitals, which usually usually are at hours, if maybe a day. And it turned out that the uh, test was inaccurate due to a mistake in the primers for the amplification of the virus. And boy, it did lead to some mistrust even in healthcare systems, right? These tests are coming negative, but this guy is sick and I think they have COVID anyway. And so um, that was a bad start. I think Nicholas already commented on that. <laughs> they let us
2: down. I wanna take a question um, from online and then. I guess back there in the corner. Um, this is a question about the, the role of education. So uh, how will we make sure that the latest technologies change what we teach in K through 12 so that we educate the next generation with the skills they need? So we're talking about discovery, keeping up with the pace of science, and now um, how, you know, how is education going to keep up with this? It becomes more and more specialized. How, you know, how do you foresee, I guess, um, addressing that? If anybody would.
1: I, I think one uh, area that we're paying a lot more attention is that we would concentrate a lot of education on these technologies in the formal education system. But if you actually look about how people are learning new skills, particularly through YouTube, as an example, through videos, and the quality and sophistication of what online education systems are happening and how people acquire skills to that, the evolution also of certification systems as Mm -hmm. opposed to, you know, formal two-year or four-year degree, um, I think a greater emphasis that we should have as employers to around demonstration of skills as opposed to degrees. I think the combination of all of those factors can democratize quite a bit more. How you learn a skill, how you start participating um, you know, in demonstrating that skill and allow people a progression of career opportunities that is less linked to credentialism, right? From mm-hmm. the, particularly in the, in the form of, of, uh, of the formal education system. I'm not saying in substitution of the formal education system. You know, uh, you know, to say that like next to my friend uh, is extremely important, but I'll just give you an example. You know, in the world of quantum computing and quantum information, okay, we may teach, you know, hundreds of PhD students, maybe a thousand PhD students, right, in the United States around quantum information science. This year through our YouTube channel of like teaching about quantum information, we're going to have a million learners who are learning around this. So the, the scale is just totally different. And we need to do both really well, but I do think there's a lot of opportunity. If it's well curated and it leads to actually practice opportunities to do a lot with that, that process.
2: Okay. Great. Um, there's another question down here in the front.
1: Um, going back to the beginning of this conversation and the investment in science and technology, and that we're at a moment of science and technology. Can you help us to understand where the US is in the world as it relates to investment in science and technology and where you think other countries may be, and not just China, how about the rest of the other countries? Because interestingly, each of the vaccines had international participants who were at the basis of it, and your panel there has international representation. I I would say the overall story of the last 15 years is one of convergence in terms of a massive gap uh, of the United States post-World War II in terms of science and technology leadership, and 70 years of convergence in terms of aggregate levels of investments, absolute levels of investments, and number of scientists who practice in these areas. The United States still arguably uh, invests the most on total dollars, but a purchasing power parity probably is crossed over now or the year to come with China. Um, So definitely within this decade, we would see on total dollar spend in R&D, China uh, will be ahead of the United States uh, on on that measure. On relative level investment, percent of GDP Definitely we've seen an erosion in the United States compared to South Korea, Japan, Germany, many other nations in terms of investments and a trend in growth. That is why you know, I've been really passionate advocate that we need to correct that in the United States. I think I'm very hopeful that finally we're seeing bipartisan action in Congress to correct that and make significant investments to alter that. But the trend has been towards erosion and relative metrics. Having said that, I still think the United States has the best R&D system in the world. The university systems of the United States continue to be, you know, I think in many ways without equal, and our ability to attract extraordinary people uh, still has been very strong. But if you take a great thing and you don't invest and you don't care for it, it erodes over time, and we were definitely eroding it. Yeah, If you
4: look at global uh, ranking systems, you'll see there's a kind of slow but steady erosion of the position of uh, American universities in terms of research preeminence. And it does have to do with levels of investment. That being said, too, though, I just want to note that uh, nationalist science is never going to work. Science is inherently collaborative, as we've been talking about, uh, and it is, as we saw in the development of these vaccines and and just about all the great things that happened in science over the last uh, 16 months, It's a global enterprise, Uh, and there are lots of concerns, obviously, about IP and uh, even uh, security with respect to China and Russia and so on and so forth, but I think it's very important not to lose sight of the fact that if you start drawing your boundaries around your scientific research, you're going to fall behind even faster.
1: It's, uh, it reminds me of just one line is that uh, Avi Love, the co-author that, I, that we're talking about, the, the meteorite, uh, he says that science is not a, a zero-sum game, but an infinite-sum game. Mm. So there is benefit, actually, on aggregate levels of investments if it's channeled properly That's as nice. this happens around the world.
2: I can take, one, we can take one more question.
1: So it's great to throw a lot of money, I hope, <laughs> at um, research and development and so forth. But
4: what's your sense of the upcoming class, if you will, of scientists and engineers mm-hmm. and mathematicians in the, in the K through 12 group, because that's really where the next generation of innovation is going to come from. Is it getting better? Is it stagnant? Is it not where we want it to be? Well, it's certainly not where I want it to be, and I can't imagine that anybody here would, uh, no. would no. disagree with me. And you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, great universities are dependent on... The students that come from uh, what is increasingly a, not only a non-competitive, but a dysfunctional K-12 through 12, uh, uh, school system, uh, especially in this country. And that's where the investments in some sense really have to be made, not that the investments are, always work in the way that people intend. Uh, but um, uh, I'll just make one comment about this. I mean, in, in, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, universities used to be much more tied into what was going On in K through 12 education, the University of California Mm -hmm. used to actually uh, uh, control the curriculum of of the school system in California, and it decided, no, we don't want to do that. And you know, we sort of ossified the structures that separate K through 12 from college and then university uh, uh, studies. That is not a good thing. I think it's time not only for us to think about. Uh, establishing new models of collaboration across and between institutions at, uh, in, in a kind of lateral sense, but also re-engaging uh, an obligation to, to, to work on rethinking how we train our, our young people. And it includes much more challenge-based, project-based learning, much more engaged online kinds of sources to supplement what is available in schools. We need to do a lot.
1: And in some cases, there has been an institutional capture of a subset of our population to the detriment of many others. Like, look at computer science. Computer science, you look at the number of like, women enrolling in computer science degree. Over the last 30 years, we've gone backwards, but yeah. not by a little bit, big time. So that is a terrible problem. It's, it's like you, you would imagine that we should have been in a situation where we would achieve like 40, 50%, right? Get a level of parity. Instead, it has become a profession where basically You know, the signaling to everybody is you have to be, um, you know, a male coder, right, with a particular set of habits to be able to enjoy this. And if you're not a prodigy when you're 15 years old programming, you should not be part of this. Mm -hmm. I think that's a terrible, terrible thing. So there are actually things that require not just, like, reform at the margins. Like, it requires an all-out assault, right, on saying, how are we going to change this? to achieve better outcomes around it. So, I, and I think that, that you, you don't get to correct that by the time you're 18 years old, you know, or 19 years old, like when you're second major, you gotta do that way earlier.
2: Um, we've been out of time, I'm... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna end it there, but thank you all, thank you all so much for being here, for doing this. Thank you everyone watching online too.
0: Dario Gill is Senior Vice President and Director of IBM Research at IBM. Serple Ayersroom is a practicing pulmonologist whose scientific contributions have led to advances in lung disease and hypoxia. Nicholas Dirks is a Professor of History and Anthropology at the University of California Berkeley, where he previously served as Chancellor. Allison Snyder is a Managing Editor at Axios, where she oversees coverage of science, space, and transportation. They spoke in June at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by the Aspen Ideas Festival team. Kitty Boone, Keelan Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Ava Hartman, Marcy Krivenan, Jonathan Melgard, Azalea Milan, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.